Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Are you experienced? Micaiah, the debut album from Jimi Hendrix. What do we need to know right up top? Boy, oh boy, what can either of us say that people don't know? I mean, like, this is one of the most iconic albums we've talked about, not just this season, but since we've been doing the podcast. You know, this is, I mean, a top quintessential record. I mean, this, but I guess we should start by saying that this is the first, right? Like you said, um, and kind of like the Beatles discussion, there's a UK version and a US version, right? They have a different cover and different track lists. Mm-hmm. Um, so five months apart. Yeah. And so for the purposes of this conversation and for our list, uh, we consider the US versions kind of be the canonical version of this record, the way that the UK versions are the definitive of the Beatles records you know, before Sergeant Pepper. Uh, so let's get that out of the way first. And, and, a, uh, and, a reason, and the reason for that, the big reason for that is this, is that because Jimi Hendrix essentially was signed to a British label mm-hmm. and started releasing, recording music for this label in October of 66, he had released three of the biggest songs on this album as singles on their own in the UK before this album ever came out. And so in the U S version, they are included in the album on the UK version. The habit at the time was if something had been released as a single, it was not included in the album. And we see this a lot, especially for the Beatles. The Beatles were kind of famous for this. They would release a song as a single, and then they would release other, other songs on the album that would come out the same year. And that's really kind of the model this is following when it comes out in the UK in May of 1967, and then ultimately in the US in August of 1967. Well, I'm glad you said that because there was this, it was kind of taboo to release singles and then put them on a record. Because the idea was that if you already had those singles and you bought an LP and three of the nine or 10 tracks you already have as a single, well, you've just been ripped off. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that actually became an issue when the Sex Pistols released Nevermind the Bollocks and a few of those songs have been released as singles already and then they went on the LP. Uh, in the punk scene, that became especially taboo. Yeah, because um, so, it was seen as a cash grab for them. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it was very common for, you know, to see the, some of the best Stone songs aren't on their UK LPs, but they're on the US versions. This is the same with the Kinks and, you know, all those British invasion guys. And you already said the Beatles. So, yeah, he is accepted in England and big in England. I mean, you know, uh, topping the charts in England before he gets here. Um, And then in the summer of 67, also known as the Summer of Love, he plays the Monterey Pop Festival. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that is when the United States uh, becomes infatuated with Jimi Hendrix, you know, who is their own right he, he is an american um so and monterey pop of course is when he sets his guitar on fire which made pete townsend furious uh, because pete townsend smashed his guitar and then rock mythology goes that he told him like hendrix 
planned on smashing his guitar, but then Pete Townsend told him not to because he was going to smash his guitar. And Hendrix was like, that's cool. So instead, he set his guitar on fire. Right. So, and this, I mean, this is what makes him blow up. Yeah. And then this, this record also comes out in 67. At the end of 67, Acts as Bold as Love comes out. So 1967, knows the Summer of Love is a big year for music, especially for Hendrix. Right. Um, another kind of key moment in his career, um, Woodstock, you know, so this is someone who had a, not just a great, you know, set of recordings and records out there, but had a even probably greater reputation as a live act in the same way that early rock and roll stars like Jerry Lee Lewis and little Richard and Chuck Berry maybe had more notoriety for their performances than they did their records. Hendrix, you know, smashing his guitars, like them on fire, um, playing it, you know, the strings with his mouth, uh, you know, all, you know, keeping joints in the headstock, you know, I mean, all, all kinds of, you know, playing the guitar with, uh, you know, behind his head, uh, putting the guitar between his legs and kind of doing these like masturbatory things with it. I mean, it was, quite a a performer so if you if anyone can view the monterey pop festival documentary in woodstock you know that that really gives you a full picture of who hendrix is and Jimi hendrix was left-handed and i'm left-handed so you know we love our fellow left-handed people we've talked about kurt cobain this season we of course love paul mccartney and ringo who's also left-handed but plays drums with like a righty uh, so we, uh, Courtney Barnett, will be talking about later this season. Also left-handed, right? So left-handed people always ready to recognize their own. So Hendrix had to turn his uh, strat the other way and string it right in the opposite direction to even get to play a guitar. Right? But even, so, even thinking about that, and this is going to be so. Let's go ahead and say this: that Jimi Hendrix is. Mabel may be single-handedly responsible for a third of all guitar players picking up the instrument from 1968 to today. Uh, I mean, there is maybe no single guitar player who has had as much influence on people wanting to pick up the guitar as he has. And, and Mackay and I both are guitar players. One of the things that is interesting, my first, um, my first really nice electric guitar was a um, 67, you know, not not from 1967, but the 1967 replica Strat that, you know, very much similar style to what Jimi Hendrix played. But because he played a guitar made for right handed players and essentially played it upside down and strung it upside down. Mm-hmm. One of the things you may notice is the bridge pickup on a Stratocaster. Basically, in order to allow the strings to sound the the way they're supposed to sound on the bridge pickup, the bridge is is at an angle going closer to the neck for for the lower strings and closer to the bridge for the higher strings. And the reason to do that is because the higher the string, so the thinner the string, so your high E, your B, your G strings, I mean, these are strings that by nature of how thin they are, are going to be louder the closer they get 
to the bridge. But by playing a guitar, by playing a strat that's designed for a right-handed player and then stringing it in the opposite direction, what actually ends up happening is you hear a much warmer middle tone in Jimi Hendrix's playing because he's essentially swapping the traditional bridge bridge axis, the bridge pickup axis of, of a normal Stratocaster simply by playing it upside down. And so even something as simple as that plays into the tone of Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing, not to mention he was one of the first to really make famous the use of um, a wah-wah pedal. Um, He was one of the first artists to um, really figure out how to utilize a, a, a a pedal that was relatively new at the time. He started using it called a Univibe. Uh, He was also one of the first guitar players in uh, among a whole generation of guitar players that ultimately adopted this to use a pedal called a fuzz face pedal. And so you combine, you know, what is unique about his playing style, the fact that he's a left-hander playing a right-handed guitar and the tonal differences that makes the, the fact that he was one of the first to utilize uh, pedals, guitar pedals, the way he was doing it. And then he was running all of this into these giant Marshall stack amplifiers. And he was a big fan of big amps loud. I mean, the, and so there's something that we think of when we think of how rock guitars sound so much of what we hear, what we expect to hear when we think about rock guitar is just Jimi Hendrix. And you hear it from the first track on this album. Well, Rob, that is a good place for us to pause, have our listeners hear from our sponsor, Anchor and from our independent record store of the week. And then when we get back, uh, we will dive deeper into Hendrix and Are You Experienced? I'm so excited to tell you about our independent record store of the week. Durham, North Carolina's Bull City Records. Bull City Records is located at 2600 Hillsborough Road in Durham, North Carolina, 27705. You can reach them by phone at 919-286-9640. They are open six days a week. And of course, you can find them online at bullcityrecords.com where you can find their entire new and used inventory available for purchase with very low shipping costs and great prices on everything they have in stock. Check out Bull City Records today.
All right. So Rob, you've already alluded, right? So you, your first guitar was the 67 Strat. Mine was a Telecaster. Like I said, I love a Tele. Um, so was Hendrix, how, how integral was Hendrix into you deciding that you wanted an electric guitar? Oh, he was everything. So, you know, again, I was born in 1980 and my first albums that I had were, were cassette tapes. So I had a tiny little like single cassette tape. I don't even want to call it a boom box. It was like just a little tiny tape player that, that I had in my room. And so I had cassette tapes and, and not just cassette tapes, you know, that was also in the days of like the cassette maxi single where you could get like essentially the cassette version of a 45 where you get an A and B side. And so I had lots of tapes and October of 1994, which was my 14th birthday, I finally got a CD player for my birthday. And that August was the posthumous release of the Jimi Hendrix Woodstock CD, which was basically the fully remastered entire Hendrix Woodstock set on CD. The very first CD I ever owned was Jimi Hendrix Woodstock. And I started playing guitar about six months later. And so that just a huge direct relationship. Um, It took me a long time to be able to play anything like Jimi Hendrix, but even some of the, not to say easier, but some of, some of the, the, the parts to learn that were, did not require the same level of dexterity, the uh, Foxy lady, you know, essentially that just like, like that's, that was one of the first things I learned to play in guitar uh, purple haze, the, you know, purple haze was probably the first song I ever learned to play start to finish on the guitar. And and, I mean, Jimi Hendrix, I I am in many ways, I'm a musician today in large part because of that Jimi Hendrix Woodstock CD and spending hours in my room with my very first guitar, learning how to play it. Rob, I, as we talked about during Zeppelin, primarily a drummer all right but it all started for me with the guitar and it was my 13th birthday october 2003 so almost like exactly 10 years after your experiences when i got my first electric guitar and the thing that made me bold enough to even ask for one was seeing the woodstock documentary Again, for anyone who listened to the previous episode, this is the point where I'm like getting into Zeppelin and Hendrix and looking to Aerosmith and ACDC, just like where where do I fit into this kind of rich music history? Pink Floyd, Stephen Miller band. I mean, I was I was looking everywhere and and seeing Hendrix at Woodstock and in my like childish, you know, naivety uh, was just watching him just like wiggle his fingers around the neck and hit the strings. I was like, well, if you're just wiggling your fingers around the neck and it can sound that cool. I mean, I can, I can probably do that. Um, I've never come close to anything <laughs> like anything Hendrix has done ever on guitar, but yeah, it, it was that kind of childish thing of being 12 and then asking for it by the time I turned 13. And, and I have a friend who his, he said he thinks the best guitars of all time is Clapton and Clapton also is a, a blues guitarist and was doing cream around the same time. 
but Clapton's also very clean, very precise. Yeah, there is a player. sloppiness to Jimi Hendrix guitar playing that yes. it, it's and, and again, that's not a dig. That's part of what makes his sound so unique. Is that well, a better way to say it's just chaotic? Yes, it, it's the the overdrive is you know just too far to the right like it, it is dialed a little bit too far right the amps are peaking the guitar sounds like it's about to explode the amps are about to blow up mm-hmm. and the only one who could wrangle this beast is hendrix yeah and not only is he wrangling it he is you know there's a bravado he's like oh not only am i having to tame this wild sound i can do it behind my head right in between my legs the, how, how casually and how easy he made it look, you know, while it sounded like the strings were about to fly off and his, just his mastery over this, this instrument is, is very appealing. And we love watching that happen. Like we love watching something about to fall apart or about to break apart or about to just go over the edge. Yeah. We also love seeing that happen in the hands of someone comfortably controlling that situation. And I think that is part of the appeal of Hendrix is to be like, well, this could become a disaster. It's on fire. You know, it's uh, the amps are about to burst. This can fall apart at any moment, but it's only the greatest rock set you've ever seen or heard in your life. It's Mm -hmm. only ever that. Yeah. There's a lot to that, and I kind of before the break we, we talked a little bit about this, but I, I want to kind of dive a little further down this idea of what makes him arguably the greatest, or, or certainly one of the greatest. You know, I think there's there's probably he's among probably 20 guitar players that I think rightfully could be considered in that conversation for greatest guitar player ever. But he's I mean, certainly let's say top five. I mean, yes, yeah, for, for sure. But but he's he's certainly and also but particularly like the electric guitar yeah the, the right, there's also you know like like robert johnson right but robert johnson never had a chance to play an electric guitar but mm-hmm. you have to say robert johnson or, or charlie Patton are kind of like the godfathers of guitar yeah, well and then and then i think well and i think the reason that i would say probably out of 20 is because i think sometimes our tendency is to think exclusive to rock guitar players but you know like there are amazing jazz guitar players there are amazing blues guitar players so 
I think that Jimmy, regardless of, of what you think, Jimmy Hendrix has to be part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason he has to be part of the conversation is because of the way he puts so much together. And so, you know, before he does the Jimmy Hendrix experience, gets out of the army and, you know, he had, he had played essentially in the army band as, as a, like an R and B guitarist in, in the army band and essentially has kind of a, a, you know, a, a, a floundering career as an R and B session guitarist or, or touring guitarist for a few years before he gets signed to this label and, and basically does albums as the Jimi Hendrix experience. One of the things that I think is easy to forget is there is this R and B background. There is this soul background. There is this blues background. He also around 1964, 1965 really starts to experiment with drugs you know, is, is, is like a lot of people in the time is, is pre-settled using marijuana. But then in 1966, right before he goes in and starts recording this album, he's introduced to acid and, and he begins regularly taking acid, taking LST. And there is suddenly this psychedelic kind of quality that is also emerging. And he blends all of those things together. But I love the way you said it, that, because he wants everything so loud. I think, I think that he, he wanted to feel his, his guitar while he was playing it. He wanted the amps to, to kind of be able to like, like it was almost like a vibrancy thing, wanting to be able to feel the music in his body. And so everything is so loud, but because of it, it is this like taming the wild beast idea. And so he, he learned very early on how to like kind of sit right on that line of how to use the feedback from the amps or the overdrive of the fuzz pedal, how to make it. So the feedback would be right at the, at, you know, the, the feedback would be the feedback at the note he wanted it to be. So he's not just playing the notes on the guitar. He's also playing the notes on the guitar and using the instruments and the feedback of the amps in such a way that even the feedback is going to be kind of the, the note he wants to play. And he's doing all of this as a six foot five, just massive human being with these huge hands. Uh And so some of it is also the thing, like it, it reminds me of a, you know, 10 years or so ago when Michael Phelps broke all the, the gold medal records in the Olympics and here's this great swimmer, but then you also kind of look at it and you realize like, he was kind of like touched by God to do that. Cause like, here's Michael Phelps. Like he's, he's like six foot four, but he has like a almost eight and a half foot wingspan. Like his arms are huge and his feet and hands are like all of these things kind of culminate together where there are just some physical things about him that make him that much more predisposed. And that was true about Jimi Hendrix as well. I mean, you, even, even a typical sixties scale length strat in the width of the neck of that guitar, he was able, because of how big his hands were, he was able to play string formations with all four of his fingers and his thumb on the other side of the neck wrapped around. And so there were things just because of his physicality that he was able to do that very few guitar players in history and no electric guitar player had been able to do. And and he brings all of that together in this, in this way that is typical blues in some way, but it's blues in a way that no one else could play it like that. It's, it's kind of typical psychedelic rock, but it's psychedelic rock in, in a way that no one else could play it, but him and the way in which those things combine together 
So even on this album, he has some very, I mean, very typical, almost like 12 bar blue songs. And then you also have these huge kind of sweeping psychedelic songs and you have those songs kind of back to back against each other. And again, he releases three unbelievable albums and then is dead by 27. Yeah. And, and so I think there, there's also this picture of like, he was able to do so much in such a short period of time and then he dies too young and I think that that all, much like we talked about when we talked about Kurt Cobain, I think that also then serves to kind of the the posthumous kind of mythology around him as a person and an artist only mm-hmm. serves to make all of this, you know, that much greater. Both left-handed, both dead at 27, and both people who define the era that they were in. Yeah, very much with um, Hendrix in the you know mid to late '60s and uh, Cobain in the early '90s and a little bit in the late '80s. Both three showed up to three records, and uh, that was it. Yeah, and in 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 a really famous live performance. So for 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 Nirvana, it was it, it was unplugged, and for Jimmy, it was the Woodstock performance in in Monterey Pop. Well, yeah, Monterey, Monterey Pop, and they, and they were both recorded, but because the Woodstock documentary and the recording of him playing at Woodstock came out as albums mm-hmm. earlier, we, we generally think of the Monterey Pop, even though it was a live, a really famous live performance he did, we, we almost generally think about the Monterey Pop almost secondary to his performance as Woodstock. I think of Monterey Pop more, be, well, first of all, I, it's a better documentary because mm-hmm. uh, D.A. Pennebaker is the best. Um, but the, the difference is that Monterey is the breakout and Woodstock, he's on top of the world. Yeah. You know, because uh, it's 69, Woodstock? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Woodstock is 69. Yeah, and so at that point, all, th- all three of his records have come out. Yeah. And Electric Ladyland coming out, you know, at the latest of all of them was the most successful of his career, you know, so this, this is a guy at Woodstock who is on top of the world. Um, but just in terms of what makes Hendrix kind of the best, um, for me, it comes down to, you know, of course what he's doing is technically amazing, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, um, it's kind of the way they talk about Neil Young, you're right. Passion over precision. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's kind of the, the thing, um, you know, so it's he I mean, he improvises like a jazz musician. You know, and he's not just improvising, you know, with like the scale that he's limited to on a guitar. He's also incorporating like, OK, where where do I take the electric guitar next? OK, well, I'll use my amps and the feedback. Okay, now where do I go? Okay, this pedal, now this pedal, now this pedal. You know, so for me, when we talk about Hendrix kind of being like the psychedelic rock guy or the hard rock guitarist, I mean, he he pretty much reinvented the wheel. I mean, he he gave the electric guitar a second life. Mm-hmm. I mean, truly, because it was you know it wasn't just about amplification or distortion. I mean, he really took it to a completely different place to open the door for 
prog rock and metal and maybe even punk, you know, and, and noise rock and all that kind of stuff as much as they would probably deny it. You know, so it's new wave people or no wave people. Um, but you have to include them, you know, so no matter what kind of genre, I mean, uh, Miles Davis, mm-hmm. you know, does bitches brew by 1970 because he's inspired by the people like Stein and family stone and, and Jimi Hendrix, you know, so he touched someone who was already probably the greatest American musician that was living at the time, Miles Davis, you know? So, I mean, his influence when he was alive, right. Not just after his death is, is uh, enormous. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite stories actually is talking about that kind of, uh, fall of 66 and spring of 67 is he's recording this album and he's recording it in London. And so he's in London the day Sergeant Peppers comes out and he's playing at a club the night Sergeant Peppers comes out. And of course, you know, everyone who's a part of the rock scene in, in England is desperate to see him. And so the story goes that basically George Harrison, Eric Clapton, Paul McCartney, Linda McCartney, um, uh, some of the guys from Rolling Stones, like uh, all of these guys are all at this club there to see Jimi Hendrix on the day that Sgt. Peppers comes out. And essentially the album that came out that day in Jimmy opens the show with a cover of the Sgt. Peppers Only Hearts Club Band, the opening track mm-hmm. of, of the Sgt. Peppers. And just blowing away. So, so again, these huge, these huge, the, the biggest bands in the world at the time, the biggest artists in the world at the time are looking to Jimi Hendrix. This is before his albums even come out and he's blowing them away like this. And then, you know, again, the album comes out in, in the UK in May. He's, he's at Monterey pop that summer, but he's at Monterey pop, you know, again, the, the lighting the guitar on fire and doing this, and it's easy to forget that's just a year after, you know, essentially Bob had gone, Bob Dylan had gone electric at the Newport Folk Festival and gotten booed off the stage. And, and so again, all of these things that, that Jimmy's clearly looking at and being influenced by, and then, you know, it's almost like right out of the gate, he's, he's putting his foot down and saying, I belong here among the conversation of these great artists and he's doing it from the get-go.
glad you mentioned Dylan because um, Dylan is huge for Hendrix. Um, but yeah, like, it's funny because like you were saying, you know, uh, spring, summer, you know, of 1966 is when Dylan goes to England to tour and, you know, they're booing him and calling him Judas. Mm-hmm. Right. And then summer of 67, Hendrix, all eyes are on him. Right. In England. We haven't talked about this yet, but Hendrix as a songwriter is pulling from Dylan a lot. I mean, of course, he famously covered all on the Watchtower and he's also covered like a Rolling Stone, which is a really great cover. Um, but, you know, kind of the, the Dylan, you know, using blues and folk kind of melodies and structures with kind of modernist or and sometimes postmodern and like abstract kind of imagery. That's exactly what Hendrix says. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he uh, is writing exactly like Dylan at this time. Um, and then of course, more, you know, stuff that is, uh, that relates to, to drugs and sex much more than, than Dylan would write about, but otherwise very similar uh, songwriting to Dylan in that, that bring all back home, like a Rolling Stone, Blonde on Blonde era, uh, very hard to separate that. But even right along the Watchtowers from Dylan's country album, John Wesley Harding. So he's he's eating that stuff up. You know, he 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 was listening to to Western swing music and the early rock and roll music and the blues and Curtis Mayfield. Right. I mean, this this is someone who is pulling from all kinds of places. He's not trying to compete with Phil Spector, the Kinks, the Who, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Beach Boys. Right. He is like Dylan pulling from all kinds of different places and becomes really an island unto himself. Someone you can't, you, no one can be compared to Hendrix mm-hmm. really, you know, every, everyone's influenced by him or inspired by him, but there's really only one Hendrix, right? Whatever guitar player you love or has influenced you, you can draw a line from that guitar player to Jimi Hendrix. Oh yeah, I mean, but and it goes beyond rock music too. I want to get this out because, like, you know, uh, George Clinton is looking at Jimi Hendrix, right? Yeah. So it's you know, after are you experienced? You know, listen to the first couple Funkadelic albums. You know, they're you know they are much more like Hendrix. Well, of course, with Eddie Hazel on guitar, much more like this than they are the album we covered, which is Mothership Connection. You know, uh, before they get into like that. P-Funk sound. You know, it really is this kind of Hendrix-esque kind of thing that they're trying to do. Uh, progressive soul with this like blues, hard, heavy guitar stuff. Um, but then also, like I said, Prince, very clearly inspired, you know, by by Hendrix, but also hip-hop. Yeah, and then um, you're talking about Prince. I mean, famously, you know, Prince, Prince loved loved covering Hendrix songs in concert. I mean, the, there, there are hundreds of examples you can find of Prince live recordings where it's, it's Prince, you know, covering some Hendrix song in concert and, and not just the big hits. I mean, Prince loved to cover Hendrix, cover a Hendrix deep dive.
someone in particular, I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but we're going to talk about Stankonia, mm-hmm. which, um, Andre 3000, you know, what, who is Andre 3000, you know, in the, in the later outcast albums without Hendrix. I mean, Andre 3000 played Hendrix in a biopic. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, Hendrix, I mean, is still inspiring hip hop artist. And, you know, people, uh, again, you know, where do you begin to classify, you know, R&B, neo-soul, like, you know, he, he still has influence there. And it's not just because, you know, it's not just because like, oh, I really like Purple Haze. I want to write a song like Purple Haze, but it's just Hendrix's, you know, inventiveness and, you know, his ability to reinvent the guitar. That I think is really kind of the inspiration. You know, it's just like, you know, how do we restart or jumpstart the genre or an instrument or production style? You know, how do you create a culture with your act? You know, because I mean, look at the cover of this record, you know, like the the purple bubble letters, the fisheye lens, you know, I mean, like the, there's the album is so representative of an, of an entire culture. Mm-hmm. The Axis Boldest Love cover, even the Electric Ladyland cover, you know, um, and the stuff that he'll do later on those albums, like, you know, changing the pitch of his voice, which we'll hear in Funkadelic and we'll hear Prince do up to like Kendrick and Frank Ocean, right? You know, it's, yeah, it's it's incredibly inventive and imaginative and so firmly kind of like, defining an era and defining a genre and defining an instrument. You know, I think that kind of ability to just like really take over so many facets of culture is I think what people are also really attracted to. They look back at Hendrix. let's talk about this album are you experienced i mean rolling stone says this is number three all time in ranking best debut albums and and again i mean like jimmy hendrix comes out of the gate a fully formed artist um with with such a clearly defined sense of this is this is what makes me unique and this is who i am and this is what i'm doing that no one else will ever be able to repeat Mm-hmm. And and he's got that on the debut album. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it's it's such a crazy thing to imagine. But in the U.S. version of this album that comes out in August of 1967, we open with the biggest hit, the biggest hit single of the album. What uh, Rolling Stone says is the 17th greatest song of all time. 
Purple Haze. Also famous for uh, uh, one of the most classically uh, misheard lyrics. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Has anyone really fallen for that? Or is that just like a goofy thing that people like to say, like to be silly? I've a- I don't know. It's one of those things I always heard people say. I, I've, it, I mean, if you, if you think in your head, if you're listening for that, you can kind of hear it. Mm-hmm. But there was no point of listening to Jimi Hendrix where I was like, oh, I wonder if that's what he's saying. Right. Yeah. I've never, even in my most immature, you know, I never thought that's what it was, you know, like, it sounds like he says this, Mm. like, it seems like, no, this scene is called purple haze and it's all very trippy and psychedelic. And, you know, kiss this guy. I mean, it, it just didn't seem like there was like a debate around it yet. You know, you're always being told like, yeah, people say that it's this. And, you know, like, I don't know. I don't, Maybe they do. I mean, I, I know everyone genuinely thought that Taylor Swift said Starbucks lovers. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, but hey, we, we, we did Taylor. We covered that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, for 11 tracks, more than half of these are monster hits, monster, monster hits. Right. We talked, you know, Purple Haze, Manic Depression, Hey Joe, The Wind Cries Mary, Fire, Foxy Lady, Are You Experienced? I mean, most most of the album is classic all-time great songs. Yeah, I mean, this, it, it plays like a greatest hits, and it's the debut album. of the record okay if, if you have the lp um i don't know if reissues have this but if you look at original copies of like the american reprise version of it you know it on the back of it, it says like be forewarned you know like you're about to be experienced after hearing this your ears will never hear sound the same way again you know like this very dramatic, very intense, like setting you up for just like what you're about to experience is a mystical experience where sound itself will be reimagined and reconstructed. You know, it's, 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 it's a why. And, and then it ends with like, you've been forewarned. 
You know, like it's it's very dramatic um, and uh, warranted. Not, I mean, like it is not that different from. It's easy to draw a clear line between what Jimi Hendrix is doing, even on the back cover into essentially the essay that is that is included in Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life. I mean, very, very, mm. those very, very similar ideas of this kind of like, this is going to change everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so Rob, shall we do top five favorite songs from the album? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm happy to do that and, and I'm happy to go first, but I, I will say this. If, if you ask me to do a 20 track Jimi Hendrix greatest hits seven, maybe eight songs from this album are going on it, mm-hmm. which with an album that's 11 songs long, that's, I mean, now granted some of that's also because he only released three albums, but yeah. still like you would, you would put demonstrably more music on a greatest, a Jimmy greatest hits from this album than any other. And, well, and I, mean, I, lo- I love access bold as love. I love electric Ladyland. Those are great albums. Those are, those are phenomenal albums in their own right. And the high points of the high points of those albums may be as high as the high points of this album, but there is not as many of them on access bold as love or electric Ladyland as there are here. Got it. You know what? We should rank our three favorite Jimi Hendrix albums after this. Yeah, I, lo- I love that idea. Okay. okay. Um, so in order of how they appear on the album, first three tracks, Purple Haze, Manic Depression, Hey Joe. Um, I mean, as as strong an opening to an A-side, especially a, a debut album A-side, as there's ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then I would sw- and then I would switch to the B-side. And I would say the wind cries, Mary, um, again, a, uh, a master class of, of how to play great blues style guitar, but make it your own and make it unique. And, uh, the, the use of the inverted chords, um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a perfect song. And then I would say, uh, it, probably a tie between fire and Foxy lady. You, you know, give me, give me either one and, and I'm happy. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so for me, purple haze, manic depression, Hey Joe, wind cries, Mary, and then fire or Foxy lady, either one. Right on, right on, right on. Right. Then for me, I'll also say purple haze. I mean, it's purple haze. I mean, like what, you know, who, who, who it, it will not be denied, right? The first yeah. song on the first album, like here he is, here's Jimi Hendrix. No better first song to be on this album no better first you know song to be introduced to this person um number two for me is manic depression Mm -hmm. as well and um this is a moment where i like to say that the jimmy hendrix experience is a band that also has two incredible people in the rhythm section so uh, this band kind of like defies what rock and roll looks like now 12 years after the you know invention of rock and roll so one thing that makes hendrix interesting is 
he's a black man playing rock and roll music. Right. I mean, where, you know, like little, you know, little Richard has inspired everyone in the British invasion, but you know, even in his time and even in the sixties, he's not getting the credit that he was supposed to be getting. Um, Chuck Berry's career has become very complicated because of his legal troubles at this time. So there aren't a lot of black people in the rock and roll music world. And here comes Hendrix with, against all odds, a white rhythm section. And, and so I want to I want to talk if I can about that because so I, I want I want you to talk about Mitch Mitchell as a drummer and, yeah. and what he does. But the thing that I find so fascinating, Noel Redding, who plays bass in the Jimi Hendrix Experience, had never been a bass player. He was he was an accomplished blues guitar player mm-hmm. who had met and become friends with Jimi Hendrix. And Jimmy liked him so much in his style of play and his understanding of kind of what Jimmy Hendrix wanted to do that essentially Jimmy, Jimmy and the producer he was working with offered Noel a job to essentially play bass, an instrument he had never played before professionally in this band. And I think because of it, it's also a, a very different approach to the bass guitar. And in, in some ways it's very similar to what we see from Paul McCartney and the Beatles, which is kind of, you know, John, John, Paul and George were all guitar players. And so it's kind of, all right, who will take on the bass in this band? And I think there's an argument to be made that Paul was maybe the best guitar player in the Beatles. Well, also piano player. He was a very gifted yeah. pianist. I think that was kind of his first way. Mm-hmm. In. And the left hand on a piano is essentially your bass. So it was kind of, the natural conclusion, right? Paul should play bass then. Yeah. And so Paul plays bass, but the way he writes bass lines for the Beatles is, is bass lines that a piano player or a guitar player would come up with. It, it's, it's more intricate in its thinking in Noel Redding for, for a bass player in a three piece band uh-huh. is doing a whole lot in really his understanding of blues music, his understanding as a guitar player, I think helps to provide and helps to um, create a setting as, as you know, one half of this white rhythm section. Yeah. It really provides this incredible canvas to, for Jimi Hendrix to paint on. 
And so Noel Redding is such an interesting character for me in this band because he's he's really remarkable as a bass player. But tell us some about Mitch Mitchell as as a drummer. What do we need to know about Mitch Mitchell? Well, I want to say one more thing about Noel Redding is when you look at the same thing I was referencing on the back cover of the LP is that it mentions that Noel Redding is there as a guitarist Mm -hmm. instead of a bassist. Uh, which I think is an interesting kind of thing. I mean, to your point, uh, but yeah, Mitch Mitchell, uh, the hilariously named Mitch Mitchell. Um, yeah. Is, is an incredible drummer. Um, and a lot of what you're hearing, you know, it's, you can definitely hear that he is a contemporary of someone like Keith Moon, but you can also hear um, James Brown a little bit. I mean, he, mm-hmm. a, a lot of these great, epic drum beats that we now refer to as break beats. Yeah, absolutely. Things that are ready to be sampled for, for break dancing and for hip hop. Um, and I think that's another reason potentially why Jimi Hendrix is in, in the music of the experience is so influential on hip hop music is because it has so many of these great uh, break beats that are funky Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean funky, like like funk music and progressive soul music, like Sly, um, and and like what James Brown is doing at this point in his career, uh, and also very jazzy, uh, extremely jazzy, especially the way that he uses his ride. Um, but and at the same time, right, that he's also kind of one of these early guys who is going to, you know, kind of be instrumental in the formation of like hard rock and metal drummers as well. Um, very, a very intense drummer. Uh, I mean, he, he attacks his drums, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, I mean, the snare, I mean, the, the, the head of the snare sounds like it's about to snap at any point, you know, like, like the, the skins are just hanging on for bare life. I mean, he's attacking those things, but yeah. Um, yeah, really, really groovy beats. And, um, and, and to bring you back to, to bring you back to kind of the point of what you're, you're mentioning is that, what we hear in manic depression, yes. is this is a band. This is yes. a band with not just Jimi Hendrix, arguably the greatest guitar player of all time, but with three accomplished musicians. Yes, absolutely. And that, that is exactly what I wanted to bring out. Thank you for bringing the song back up. Uh, listen to the band on this track in particular. Uh, this is, these are three amazing musicians and they're three people on the cover too. It's not just Hendrix on the cover. It's all three of them, you know, on the first record, of course, by electric Ladyland, it's just like that big, huge close-up of Hendrix. But on this first record, you know, this is the experience. It's these three guys, you know, and manic depression, I think reminds you, right. It, 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 in the mix, like it calls attention to these three people and listen to fire, right? That's another, another really great drum track um, on, on this record. And there are some more that I'll talk about too on my list. Um, uh, okay. Uh, unpopular opinion, but genuinely top five favorite song on this album. Uh, May this be love. Great song. Waterfall. Nothing can harm me at all My worries seem so very small But my waterfall I can see my rainbow calling me 
love this song it's one of it's one of those things where it's like if you start knowing like the five to six to seven big hits because of compilations or you know the, the concerts of hendrix and you go back and you listen to this record it's one of the songs that you listen to and you're like whoa wait what's this song what's this side of Jimi hendrix i i've never heard this side of him before i've kind of only heard the big hits either on the radio or whatever, but this is something right. That's unique to this record. And part of what makes this record really kind of special is, is these kind of tracks, these album tracks that are on here. And then of course I have the ever so groovy, the wind cries, Mary, mm-hmm. um, which I guess maybe my favorite vocal performance of Hendrix, who I think and, and I don't know if this is true, but I know that this is how musicians and, you know, while I was growing up talked about Jimi Hendrix is that he was someone who didn't love his voice, didn't particularly love singing. Mm-hmm. And so he tried to make up for that with his guitar playing. Yeah. was very self-conscious about singing would, I mean, would really create problems in the studio because he was so self-conscious about singing that he wanted to be in, in an isolation booth that had no window into the control room. And so it basically meant that he, you know, it would take forever to record vocal vocal takes for him just because he didn't have a visual cue of what the guys in the control room were wanting him to do. And, Mm -hmm. and, but, but he, the idea of someone looking at him while he was singing um, was, was a really big deal for him. He was very self-conscious about himself as a singer. Yeah. And, and I and I bring that up because I love the vocal performance on When Christ Mary. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. I think it's I think it is one of the best of his career, not just on this album, one of the very best of his career. Yeah, I I love the, that that record for that. And um Five for me is the title track. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you experienced? Another great song. You know, uh, right there at the end of the album, you know asking the question well you know are you experienced you know was it as good for you as it was for me you know <laughs> uh that kind of thing and uh again the drums there's kind of like a march marching kind of snare drum kind of sound to it and it's just, it's just grand and it's epic and it's sweeping you know and it's i imagine if maybe you start the record on side two and maybe you know you start taking drugs maybe at on that track maybe the shit starts kicking in and it opens up a whole other place right because it sounds like a song that's built to do what the back of the lp warns you of right it's going to open up your mind expand your mind and you know readjust your ears to how you hear the world you know all that kind of hyperbole um, but this track seems to be made to do that and i think does that even for the square sober folk like myself if you can 
together Then come on across to me We'll hold hands and then we'll watch the sunrise From the bottom of the sea But first, are you experienced? You need the album to kind of get to this track. It's not going to be on the compilations, most likely, or the live sets. Um, it, it is something that is, you know, if you're going to discover Hendrix, pretty unique to the record. And I think um, makes for an excellent closing track and a statement about the record that you've just heard um, in a way that's, you know, gives the album as a, you know, not just, you know, I feel like as we're making this list, a lot of what we're doing is like, okay, who's an artist who needs to be on here and what's kind of the best album, you know, like we got to have this person on here. So what do we, you know, what, what, what do we choose? And so what makes a song like this is what kind of like reminds me, like this isn't just like a Hendrix placeholder, like this, this album is the one that need, like, this is one of the great albums that happens to be by one of the great artists. You know, yeah. and not just like let's get a Hendrix pick. When when you have an album like this that's this good and this universally beloved and kind of critically acclaimed, I mean, there's there's not a bad review of this album. Um, though the album never went number one, it peaked at number two in the UK, number five in the US. Um, it was up against Sgt. Pepper. I mean, yeah, I mean, in 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 to date, has sold you know ten million copies globally, like. This, this is an album that, that I think there, I, I understand the Jimi Hendrix fan or the musician who's like, Hey, we talk so much about our you experience. Don't forget access bold as love. Don't forget electric Ladyland." And so right. I think there's kind of a, um, a push we're seeing, especially on the most recent uh, Rolling Stone 500 list, where I, I think we're seeing Access Bold of Love and, and Bold as Love and Electric Ladyland kind of move up, which which I totally understand and, and and kind of almost see them as like underdogs that need to get more respect. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, this is this is the best Jimi Hendrix album, and I I don't think it's close. I guess let's kind of talk about the other two. I mean, like we did this for big star. So, I mean, like, I mean, there is something to electric lady land kind of being awarded for being like the big double LP, mm-hmm. you know, that will have like a 14 minute song on it. It's very muscular album. It has along the watchtower, which that's the most played song he has like on Spotify. You know what I mean? Like, it, you know, it, it's not without, Big hits that you know the guitar on Voodoo Child 
you know, slight return, right? That's the name of the final track on Electric Ladyland, right? The guitar on that is just some of the best stuff of his mm-hmm. career. Agreed. Right? You know, and there's there's great funky stuff on there, and the he's leaning even more into the progressive soul stuff, um, you know, and it's a it's a great final statement, right? From this artist, right? So there's there's a case to be made for Electric Ladyland that I. I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, Axis Boldest Love is definitely the middle child, right? Because it's not the debut album and it's not the final album. It definitely has like middle kid syndrome, mm-hmm. right? But I mean, there are days when Axis Boldest Love is my favorite. Um, even if I'm ready to say Ari Experienced is the best, uh, because you look at things like, up from the skies, wait until tomorrow. Um, and I mean, like, you know, uh, some of my favorites on here, like one, one rainy wish, um, on access bullets love mm-hmm. is probably is a top five Hendrix song for me in, in order. My favorite Jimi Hendrix albums. Mm-hmm. Are you experienced at number one mm-hmm. access bold is love at number two. I would put the Woodstock live performance at number three in Electric Ladyland at number four. Okay, that's interesting. You you uh okay, you tricked me there. I didn't I didn't know we were gonna play by these rules. Um and I think and I think it's because this so the that Woodstock performance, it's it's him at the height and the way in which you hear because one of the things we haven't talked about is is as great as this band is as a studio band, they are better as a live act. There, there is something, you know, we, we talked about this idea of Jimi Hendrix being, you know, kind of like, like wrestling this beast and all three of them do that in the live performances. And the, what you can hear on the Woodstock recording and in what that, you know, how important that recording is and how that, how important that moment is. And, you know, again, in the middle of the Vietnam war an army veteran playing the star spangled banner at the end of the day, like as a protest song. Yeah. I mean, like that's, how do you take a traditional song and play it like a protest song? Yeah. You know, he, he, he like, creates the bombs bursting in air mm-hmm. with the electric guitar and he's yeah. not backed by a band you know it's it's that chaos again mm-hmm. right and inventing the chaos creating and curating the chaos and and then at the end of it creating a wonderful piece of art that's yeah. jimmy you know um okay i didn't know we were playing by these rules um, then I'll say my number four, then, um, it's such a short set. So I'll just make a number four is, is the Monterey, his set at the Monterey pop festival, mm-hmm. uh, for me, which is only six songs, right? If not less, um, you can, you can pull it up if you want, but like, cause like for me also like, um, Otis Redding's set at Monterey pop is also, one of my favorite things that he has done, you know, is the, again, the stop making sense thing where it's like Otis at Monterey pop festival. That is like 
his records are amazing, but like if you really want to know who Otis Redding is, Monterey Pop. Watch that. Um, but yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy and Monterey Pop is is great. And the whole band is 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 amazing in that um is amazing. It's eight that, eight songs. Eight songs. So they do songs? it's it's Hey Joe, they cover BB King's Rock Me Baby, they cover Chip Taylor's Wild Thing, they cover the Dylan song like Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. and then they do Foxy Lady, Can You See Me, and When Cries Mary. Damn. All right. Moving that to number three. Um, the number four then is Electric Lady Land. Sorry, Electric Lady Land, I did my best. Um, but you know, it's it, it is one of the great double LPs. It was the most successful album in his lifetime, and it's coming off of you know, you know, Dylan in '66 does Blonde on Blonde, and '60 the same year is the White Album. So it's it's a time when double LPs are becoming a big acceptable thing. You know, we get a lot of music from your favorite artist. You know, and I mean. You know, I'll say this though: if Are You Experienced and Axis Bold of Bold as Love, which both came out in the same year, if that were his double LP, oh man, like now, now, now we're talking. Um, so sorry, um, number uh, Electric Ladyland, you've been put it to number four, uh, a great record. But it, it I, I'm with you, Rob. Though it is kind of like um. A thing where you're listening to it and then you stop to look, especially in the era of streaming, where you're like wow, I still got this many songs to go. It's much easier to listen to on the turntable than to stream it. Streaming it can be a little... Yeah, well, and uh, on the turntable, it gives you the nice breaks because like, you're never getting more than five songs at a time. Yep. Yep. It's four songs on each side pretty much, but I think maybe one where there's three and then one where there's five. So on average, four songs per side, which is... A great way to listen to a double LP and in the CD and streaming era, just listening to a double album or a triple album is becoming a thing that's maybe harder to sit down and do. Um, anyway, Monterey Pop, number three, now that you've brought that up, even though it barely counts, um, whatever. We, we only have so many to work with. Uh, and then number two, Axis. Bold as love, though, I mean, on, on the right day, it could replace my number one, Are You Experienced? Um, but it's just, are you, it's, it's just bulletproof. Yeah. And there's nothing you have to apologize for. Like the cover, like Hendrix didn't like the cover of Axis Bold as Love. He thought that he was like, well, that kind of appropriate, like a religion that I don't really believe in. Like he, from what I recall, like he was kind of uncomfortable with it too. And, you know, there, there's something to apologize for on our experience, which also makes it easier. And it is that that great debut. It's right there in the summer of love. You know, it's it's got these these rock music staples. You know, it's yeah, it's it's our experience. Why am I acting like I have to defend this pick? You know. After all the jets are in the boxes and the clowns. All gone to bed. You can hear happiness staggering on down the street. Footprints dressed in red. And the wind whispers very. A broom is drearily sweeping 
Let's ask an, a question with an obvious answer. Uh-huh. Does are you experienced by the Jimi Hendrix experience deserve to be on our list? Yes, absolutely. Follow-up question. Rolling Stone put it at 30 on the 2020. Where, which quadrant in our top 100 do you suspect this album will end up? I, I think... I think Rolling Stone got this one pretty right. So that that kind of 20 to 40 range is is where I would see it for us. That kind of second, yeah. the second 20 of our list is where I would see this. It's hard because I mean when we're when it comes time to have to rank these things, which I am really not looking forward to. It is one of those things where I think we made a mistake in coming up with the premise of this podcast. Uh, the idea of having to rank these albums now that we're going to have 50 at the end of the season is um, anxiety inducing. Um, when, when it comes, you know, when you're looking at our list and you're deciding how to rank them, you know, what's always going to give this one the edge over another album is that it just has so much influence. Yeah. You know, and I think it'll be pretty high on influence alone. Um, but it's just one of those ones that for me, it's kind of hard to grade or rate or rank just because it's, it's so grand and it's so epic and it's Hendrix, you know, I have the same kind of problem with kind of blue. He's like, well, where and purple rain. So there's some just like mega things where you're just like, what, what do you, how, how do you begin to, if we're looking at those three together, right? Cause at some point we're going to have to purple rain. Are you experienced kind of blue? What, what order do you begin to mix these up and say, which of these three, you know, write these three, which, you know, which is one, two and three, you know, that becomes a strange game that we've, agreed to do together for the next few years. And, and one of the things that I think, so I, admittedly, cause I, I'm starting to, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't know if we've talked about this, but you, you know, saying like feeling like, man, did we make a mistake in, in the, the kind of the conceit of this podcast um, is, is also this thing of going, you and I both multiple times through the year, like sit down and try to like do our favorites, like forget best. Like, just our favorites. And it's impossible for me to rank my hundred favorite albums. Like there, there, there are, there are 20 albums that could be in that conversation. And so those make up the top 20, but what the ranking looks like beyond that is. And and so for me, I think it's helpful for me to like start thinking about it in terms of like quadrants and just going like, all right, like there's a, there's a, is this a top 20 album of all time? Is this a top 50 album of all time? Is this top hundred? There are plenty of albums on our list that I'm like, that's definitely a top hundred album of all time. Yeah. But 
I don't have that same sense of certainty around, is this a top 20 album of all time? The albums that might realistically be in consideration for some of the, like for the best album of all time, Mm -hmm. like you very quickly realize like, man, even, even with just 50 albums down in the list, you know, through the podcast, like there's 25 albums we have that I think should realistically be in the top 20. Like, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I'm kind of at too. It's like, we have 40 albums that I think are the top 25 best of all time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that, and that's what I'm saying. So I think, I think for me, that's where I think the Rolling Stone list kind of got this right. And, and there, and look, there, there are plenty of ways in which the, the Rolling Stone, you know, every iteration of the 500 greatest albums list, um, there, there are some huge gaps. There are some massive misses. There are some entire genres that they've ignored there. You know, like there are things you and I love that clearly the people who are compiling these lists have no interest in. And so like that stuff's always going to be there. But then there are the ones where you're kind of like, yeah, I think they got that pretty right. And yeah. so for, for the most part, like that's when you get into like that top 50, like with, with the exception of a few like random, you know, like as, as you are a fan of saying like Kanye is dark, twisted over um, dark, twisted, overrated fantasy, uh-huh. like stuff like that. Like with the exception of a few kind of wild things like that, for the most part, most of the things that end up in the top 50 are pretty agreeable kind of like canonical. Hey, this is among the best albums of all time where it gets difficult is then going, all right, well then how do you rank that? Like yeah. what, what separates blood on the tracks from revolver to what's going on to kind of blue to purple, like yeah. to thriller, like you, you start getting into those things. And then you realize that at that point you're, you're having to be so specific and kind of nitpicky in how you make that determination and you realize by that point that so much of how you're making that decision has so little to do with music. You know, it becomes not just about the album. So it's really hard to remember like albums, 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 which is the best album. What, you know what I mean? Like I really want it to be about the record, the artifact, not necessarily just the artist. And that helps out for something like Thriller, right? Like we're not here to put a Michael Jackson album here. We're here to put the best albums on here yeah so you know so, I mean? what, so what, whatever you say about michael jackson in in and by the way to say this again whatever you say about michael jackson makai and i probably agree with you like yeah. we also struggle with this but if you make go it, back and listen to our thriller episode yeah. if you haven't i'm personally i'm still very proud of that episode yeah um, but but all that to be say like if you listen to thriller you still go this is this is a bulletproof album Bruno Mars has been remaking Thriller for 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Why wouldn't you? Why isn't everybody? (laughs) You know, you can't blame him. You can't blame him. And he's good at it. When it comes to looking like those albums, say at the other end, we also have Kendrick Lamar, Frank Ocean, the national Taylor Swift with Prince Miles Davis, Jimi Hendrix. Once you're getting to the point of ranking, then it moves beyond just music and it moves into not the album in and of itself, but where does the album sit in the context of time and influence and culture? Because that's that's the only thing standing in the way of of putting, you know, to pimp a butterfly, which I think still may end up as a top 20 for us. 
Um, but that's the only thing standing in the way of Blonde, you know, ending up as a top 20 album is just it, it hasn't been around long enough to appreciate its influence. And so what we can see, and so when we're talking about our experience, we're not just talking about this album, we're talking about the way in which this album essentially created the next three generations of guitar players. So, yes, I do think our experience should be on our list. Um, I, when it comes to ranking it, I feel like it has to be in the top 50. Some, I don't know where in the top, but if I feel like, but I don't want to make our list thinking in terms of obligations. Like I'm obligated to put this in the top 50, you know, like I want to make sure that I really believe right where I'm putting this album. But I also want to not be afraid to say blonde and trouble will find me also need to be maybe in the 50 for our list besides something like, are you experienced? So I'm curious to see at the end of this season, now that we, we have a lot more this season, newer records from the last 20 years, you know, so where, where those are going to land side by side with these, with these tapestry and blue and pets, you know, where, where they're going to stand. I'm very curious to see, you know, where we allow ourselves to, to put those. We'll see. We don't have much. We don't have much of the season left. We're, I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be coming up to this end of the season ranking here by the end of next month. Yeah, pretty shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, listener, look forward to um, that headache of an episode. We promise we will make it uh, much easier to listen to than the last ten minutes of this episode. But, um, hey, but in, in the meantime, between now and then, we do have some exciting things coming up. So, listener, you want to be getting ready. We we have. Uh, the Beach Boys Pet Sounds coming up with our guest, Will Hines. Uh, we're going to have our friends from the Paranoid Style back on to talk Courtney Barnett. Uh, we've got a lot of exciting guests in a lot of exciting episodes coming up. I'll add one more. We have um, our, our, our friend from the Radiohead episodes. Uh, Brad Effort is coming back to get to talk about something other than Radiohead. That's right. Change. Fiona uh, Apple. talk about uh, Fiona Apple right uh fetch the bolt cutters versus win the pawn so that is going to be uh another versus episode we haven't you know it's you know oh we just a big start but you know th- those are always really fun episodes uh yeah so until then of course um if you haven't already subscribe or follow so that when those episodes drop you can have them in your feed ready to go uh, if you already have done that please rate and review the pod. Um, it helps other people find it. Um, of course, you can always be sharing it with your friends as well. Um, reach out to us on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you agree with what we're talking about? Um, do you disagree, right? We are a podcast that actually encourages people to come and at us in the comment section, right? Did we get this wrong? Let us know. Help us out. Right. As much as this is Rob and I's list, right? We we are opening uh you know the door to hear what other people think, right? We've we've corrected course before. Where can they find us on social? Of course you can always find us um at you forgot one on Instagram and at you forgot one pod on Twitter. There's our website, youforgotone.com, and uh to subscribe and follow us, there's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, you name it, we're out there. 
um, you're, you know, you found us, you made it this far, you found us somewhere. Um, so and, and yeah. we don't talk about this much, but I want to take a moment and just give a quick shout out for those of you who are following us on Instagram. Uh, you're following us at you forgot one. And I'm so glad that you do, but Micaiah has, uh, one of the better record collections of anyone that I know. And he likes to show that off. So make sure you're following him at blood on the wax on Instagram at blood on the wax on Instagram. And you can check out his record collection as he shows it off as we walk through this uh, season together. That's right. I'll always be posting from my personal collection, whatever records we're talking about. Um, yeah, it was fun. Um, big star actually shared our, my, my big star post. Um, so thank you. Big star that that big star bump in our plays. That was, that was very nice. That's right. That's right. Well, Hey, uh, Listener, we want to leave you with this. And, and Makai mentioned this earlier, and I think that it, it bears repeating as we close out this episode. At the height of protests against the Vietnam War, Jimi Hendrix, an Army veteran, plays the Star-Spangled Banner at the close of day at the Woodstock concert and makes the national anthem into a protest. Thank you.